Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, the host of The Food That Binds, a podcast about food and relationships. Since you may not know who I am, I thought I'd take this opportunity as we embark upon season two to reintroduce myself. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer living in Atlanta, Georgia. If you don't know anything about Atlanta, we are the best hidden secret in the South. But this isn't just about Atlanta. This is about people all over the industry and more than a podcast about how the food gets made. This is about why it gets made. Now that that reintroduction is out of the way, let me introduce season two's first guest, Maricela Vega. Hi, Mari. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jen. It's so nice to talk to you again. It's been so long. I know. <laughs> we, I feel like we have a check-in like once a year. I can see yeah. where you're at. <laughs> but I wanted to talk more just about where you've been and, and where you're at and where you're going. Um, everyone, you know, probably knows of you through your beautiful food and all the multiple features you know, and Bon Appetit everywhere. <laughs> but um, if, if, could you introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are? Sure. My name is Maricela Marivega. Um, and I've been raised in Northwest Georgia since I was eight years old. I was born in California, but I really consider myself an Atlantan. I've been here since 2008. I was registering recently I'm like wow I've been here since 2008 so I feel like I consider myself an Atlantan that really got here through cooking and have just sort of I guess paved my way into where I am and quite I think that's quite literal like I just started I hopped out of the cooking world for a bit and then just started doing my own sort of work and trying to figure out my worth and that sort of came with the pop-ups and here I am and um, fast forward to 2021 and it's kind of wild to say that but um, yeah I really feel like my work is really starting to show out now finally like and it feels good it feels really good to be in this position of course it's been hard but lots of lessons learned as it as it goes. Well, it feels like the work just as someone like who met you when you were selling tamales, like in the parking lot of MJQ <laughs> like many years ago, just your work seems just so much more grounded now because I mm -hmm. think you like have a very definitive sense of place and point of view. Um, but I mean, I do want to kind of like, you know, rewind back. Like one of the things I love to ask people is like, what is like your first food memory? Like what is the first piece of food that you remember and that you can like envision? I bet it just has to be like a quesadilla and a bowl of beans and an atole de chocolate. Like to me, those have always just been like, oh, like mouth waters, especially with an atole de chocolate and a good pastry, whether it's a concha, an oreja, just a good Mexican pastry. That is what always hits like, oh, yes, it's Saturday morning. We get to have pastries and atole and of course, quesadillas and beans. So that's always been, I think, for real, like the main thing that I can always turn back to. And, and quesadillas for you, your family's from closer to Mexico City, no? 
kind of like around there. Like, what is a quesadilla yeah, too? Because like, like a quesadilla is very different in lots of parts of Mexico. So for us, it looks like an empanada in the yeah, you know, made out of maize masa. Yes, yeah. I agree. That, that's that's a good question. Um, it goes both ways. I like both because sometimes she would griddle them just super quick and easy. And she was already making tortillas and she would just go ahead and griddle them. And sometimes she would go full out for lunch hour. For lunch hour, she, my mom, she is my mom. Um, for lunch hour, my mom would always fry them. Deafest style. With just cheese, just very pure. Salsa verde with chile de arbol. That was her go-to with the quesadillas. Um, so yeah, that's a quesadillas to us. I guess I, I'm lucky I got both. <laughs> Was there someone who stoked your curiosity for food? Well, mom was the cook. Mommy was always cooking for us. But uh, my brother, Daniel, who was my best friend growing up, he's maybe three years older than me. He was always kind of like guiding me into like, all right, this is what we're doing now, you know? And he would always dive into French cooking. He always just like drove into like outside of where we were, which is outside of the country. And yeah, he introduced me to, you know, just like simple things like air covert. And I guess that's where like the inspiration of what is more to cooking than just what mom makes. Because of course my mother will always be the first person that I automatically link to to cooking. But I've been thinking on this deeper. It's like, where did I really start to think about like, food outside of Mexican cuisine. And it had to be with my brother who was always just studying really everything and uh, teaching us <laughs> in his own weird ways about colonization <laughs> by splitting up the backyard into different territories. <laughs> and I'm like, what was that growing up? <laughs> but it makes sense. So yeah, I think my between my mother and my brother, um, that's sort of where I learned about Mexican cuisine and then what was outside of Mexican cuisine, like croissants. He was like, you've got to try this. And I was like, what is it? So croissant, I'm like, wow, I love this. And he introduced me to croissants and just really French food in general. And from there, I guess I started to open my brain up more about what was outside of Mexican food. But I mean, you grew up mostly in the South. You were in California for a while. Is that right? Am I remembering? Yeah, I just as a kid. Very, right. yeah, just like very faint memories. Faint memories of the elote man, the paletero man. Um, but I grew up in the South and I was raised in Dalton, rural, super rural town where we were not inside of the city of Dalton. Um, so in terms of eating out, like maybe, maybe like, a couple times a year it would be like the fast food but we never experienced southern food outside of what was in the cafeteria so <laughs> even then i remember like thinking about coleslaw someone mentioned coleslaw recently and i was like i remember growing up and wondering what coleslaw was i was like what is this that's a, but, but i like me an ambrosia like salad i was like what is the ambrosia salad? i remember seeing it in um Edward Scissorhands and it was a southern oh. thing you remember she's like try my ambrosia and yeah. I was like what the fuck is this shit and then it's everywhere in the south but something I've been ruminating on or not ruminating something I've been just 
thinking about more deeply has been my relationship to Southern vegetables. So I, it wasn't until I went to San Francisco after Emory and went to culinary school and got into the culinary industry and then came back to Atlanta that I discovered what Georgia produce like could be. And, And it was, and I've said this in other interviews, it was like really when people like Nicholas and, you know, um, Celia at Woodland, everyone was like really like building. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't remember being as in love with Southern produce as a child. Do you? No, I don't. And I honestly, it's because we were, we were going to Kroger. We didn't really see as many, weirdly enough, I always think about this. We don't see enough farm stands where we, where we are. Like it being that we're in the country and that there's beautiful springs up there and like little creeks and rivers, um, whatever agriculture you might see, I would I would assume that it's probably for feed, animal feed, because we never really see it out there. And unfortunately, yeah, I always think on that. Like, why didn't we see enough of that? Especially, but I don't being even in the think country. it was. I mean, even in the city. I mean, I grew up in Atlanta. I mean, I. I we we didn't see that it wasn't like farmers markets weren't really a thing either and like you know finding like heirloom tomatoes i remember when you first started getting heirloom tomatoes in mass i just i just wonder because i it's something i think about like what was the jump you know to heirloom and as someone who cooks so beautifully with vegetables with your you know often vegan mexican cuisine i I was wondering if you had connected at an early age, because I just can't remember anything beyond peaches. Not specifically with anything in Georgia. Um, any produce that we got fresh was just very, and then the garden was very small. We had just like two very small plots and whatever was grown, which is primarily peppers, really just peppers and tomatoes. Um, that was pretty much the fresh, about as much fresh as we got really until really recently. So, I mean, I guess we really got to contribute that to the renaissance between both the farmers and the growers to where we are now. And, and chefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and diners of- being willing and like also open to valuing those heirloom vegetables. But, but yeah, that cycle. It, it's just really interesting to see how it's grown. And I just don't remember it being like as robust as a child. And it's something I've been trying to get to the bottom of. And I thought maybe you might have an answer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but enough about that. No. So speaking of, you know, the culinary industry and vegetables, when did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? That it was like, oh, I'm going to go work in the culinary industry. Um, when I took time off from school and, um, when I took time off from school, I, what did were you studying? I went in and out of international studies as a pre-law major. And I started at Georgia Southern. Then I got an internship in Atlanta and, uh, my friend's dad was an attorney criminal law. And so I, I, I got assigned to a couple of cases with him. But after that, I took a break from school and I had to start paying for life. You know, mom's mom and dad were like, hey, well, you're not in school, so figure it out. Um, and that happened a couple of times. And in between those times, I took restaurant jobs. And one of them was a hosting 
hosting and I was hosting at Local Luna and then across the park, across Piedmont Park was Sierra. And I, that was my internship. So from school, I would go to internship, then I would go to host at Local Luna, then go home. Um, and while I was doing those three, um, school was only two classes. So I don't really consider myself being at school at that period of time, <laughs> but because two classes, you know. Um, so I guess it was then when I was working with Tisha and Dan that I, my curiosity just blossomed and I just really enjoyed their relationship. Of course, there's a special because they ran the front of house, they ran the back of house. They did everything. They went out and bought the ingredients. They had just like such a beautiful relationship with everything. And they would make a lot of like, um, or that's, I guess, where I started to learn more about origin cooking. They would have like a week's worth of menu, I think like every three months where they would like maybe travel to whether like El Salvador or somewhere in Mexico, just all over Latin Latino America. And they would pick a certain section and then just do a whole menu based off of that. And I just thought that that was so neat, you know, like mixing passion with like just learning more about the culture and educating people through food and your interpretations and just a combination of all of that just really made me think deeply about what it could be to be in this profession that I never even considered growing up. I never even considered being a chef or thinking that you could make a living off of that. It just never crossed my mind, but also I never went to like nice restaurants growing up. So I didn't know much about that world until I was in Atlanta. And I guess that's sort of why I've just always stuck around in Atlanta. It does give you opportunities to learn, but we're like in our own, I don't want to say bubble, but it sometimes does feel like we're in our own world here. It's a so, very tight culinary family, which, yeah. you know, I mean, and it's so, it's like such an onion, so many layers, so many different mm -hmm. flavors, which I don't think people really get about Atlanta, which I'm hoping they will through this podcast. Like we're not all just like biscuits and barbecue, not that there's anything wrong with that, yeah. um, but because <laughs> we oh. love that, <laughs> but just for you in Atlanta, can you take listeners, let's just assume that no one knows who you are. Can you take listeners kind of like what your culinary journey has been and where you are today? Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, first off, my first job was working at a barbecue restaurant in Dalton. Um, so that was really fun to just sort of understand my Southern roots, if you will, and getting acquainted. Uh, after that, I went to school and then I came to Atlanta and I took that little internship with Ticha and Dan. I worked three hours with them, four days a week. And uh, that, that was basically the beginning, the intro to my culinary school. I mean, they did, you know, the typical um, sort of German French French chef thing where they would check my fillets. Like <laughs> when I was learning to fillet chicken, they'd be like, oh, you left a lot of meat on this. Uh, you're not ready to graduate onto fish um, butchering. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> I didn't realize you were going to check the trash can. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, it's good because a lot of that you have to consider deeply, especially as we move fast, as we fast forward into current times and thinking about how you know, we're really making the most out of every ingredient. 
So that was my little intro. And then I went to school for a little bit, then finally decided that that was done. I think I went for like two more semesters and I was like, nah, this is, this is not it. I keep thinking about food. I would always make food for all my friends. Um, and so then I completely, I remember I called my mom. Uh, I was in East Atlanta. And I just remember looking out the porch and being like, oh my gosh, she's gonna kill me. And I was like, mom, I'm dropping out of school. I wanna be a chef. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, no, 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 no. You need to keep wanting to be an attorney. Like we'll pay, like we'll help you. We'll figure That's it out. That's not what we did like, all this for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what, what? what do you mean? Are you going to work at McDonald's? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, mom, I'm going to figure it out. It's okay. I think like, you know, teach and Dan are doing it. Like, I think I can figure it out too. Um, so I was like 19, probably close to 20. Once I finally fully was working at, I lived in East Atlanta. So I got a job where I could walk. Um, so I went to Midway and I just went up to Travis and I was like, Hi, um, I hear you're the chef and I was just wondering if I could learn, I could be your prep and just, you know, have a little bit of a skill set. And he took me in and I worked with Speedy and Juan. And I mean, those are like the second, I guess, 201, if you will. They taught me how to make mousses and bases and sauces. And I was working for men from Oaxaca, you know, from, um, or no, Guerrero, because they're from San Marcos. And listening to Cumbia and, you know, um, getting my, that was a really, I, I feel really lucky that I don't have too many horror stories about being in the kitchen, especially working with males, because uh, they were really nice. Like they were probably like 35, both of them, and just showing me the ropes and showing me how to have fun with food and, um, and also showing me bits of Guerrero and little pieces of Mexico that I didn't know about. Um, and then from there, I got a little catering gig over at Sun in My Belly and I kind of just helped out there for a while. Um, I worked with Nima Osman who had just moved from New York and had worked with, you know, like Kraft and just all these other restaurants that were really well established up there. And so I got a little bit more knowledge from her, a lot of management out of that. And um, even some styling work because we did weddings. So we had to work with Southern Living Magazine and creating all of that. <laughs> um, lots of weddings, lots of weddings. Um, a hearty catering business, that's for sure. Whew, yeah. yeah. And after that, I went on and started doing pasta work. I, I was at Sun in My Belly for a few years and I started doing pasta work at 246. Uh, with Jubilee and the Ford fries. And that was also super fruitful because I had no knowledge whatsoever. So much technique. All, yeah. these, all these steps, you really are in all sorts of different technique too. Different yes. kitchens too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. from like very like Dan and Ticha, 50 covers, no more than 100 covers to doing weddings that were like up to 300, 500 people hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, all of that pressure, to me, unnecessary pressure, you guys. Y'all are gonna be shit-faced and not even remember this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then 
uh, when I went to 246, um, I felt, I really enjoyed it because I was there from six in the morning till like 1 p.m. by myself. Um, I had gained enough trust from Andrew, Isabella, that once I did my training, of course, that he was like, yeah, you, you got this, you got this, you got the dough down, that he would just let me laminate and um, extrude pasta and let me have a lot of like creative freedom. I was doing a lot of work with uh, leftover beet juice and pulp and carrot powders and just different powders and colors and making different kinds of colors and kinds of pasta. Um, I also got to go down the rabbit hole of understanding that you can have pasta, but it has its regionality and certain components that go with that pasta set according to its region and mm -hmm. state and um, shape. Yeah, shape. So there's a lot of learning at each um, at each restaurant um, on all sorts of scales. After that, I got a job with uh, ESS, with Josh Hopkins, and Empire I mean- Empire State South. Empire State South. I was there for a few years and that's where I refined everything. I kind of just lumped all of those past years into ESS. I got stuck at Garmo pretty much the whole time I was there. <laughs> but I will say I'm a very fast cook now because of that. Um, they like to put us ladies on garmanger. <laughs> yeah, I was like, really? I really want to learn how to grill. <laughs> I want to be a line cook, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a different, it's a different game. It's yeah. It's a different game. But um, so how did it, how did you get from all of these like, really solid Atlanta culinary jobs. If you're listening outside of Atlanta, these are all very solid Atlanta restaurants. How did, how did you make the jump to doing the pop-ups in your house? I would say that a lot of it came from doing my growing internship uh, that was mixed with my line cook. And mind you, throughout this whole time, you know, you're really not making more than $15 an hour. So you can be anywhere from $8 an hour to $15 an hour throughout this entire period of time. And you're just like, oh God, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> you're mid twenties and you're still kind of, you're like significantly struggling. There's a lot of things you can't do. You barely have health insurance. If you have health insurance, it's a big chunk. And then I get exposed to growing and like really kind of getting the rhythm of what it could be like to just be self-sustaining if you really could and you know get to that point where you have land and have your own vegetables and what could you do with those vegetables as your skill set well I could definitely make a lot of put seed to shelf basically or seed to plate is what I got out of my experience at ESS and with Grow Where You Are. So it uh, allowed me to kind of become independent and give me that, that lens of independency to say, well, sure, you can work for an establishment or you could potentially have something for yourself, have your own business and you know, set your own rules up and set your own boundaries up. And that's what it started to feel like, um, I think, Hopkins let me have like a tamale pop-up during uh, food and wine and it was well recepted and it gave me just enough confidence that I needed because I was a very shy person, very, 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 very shy person then. I still think I am now, but even more so then to give me the boost to be like, yeah, you can do it. Like, 
just put yourself out there just like you did this. And so that's just how I just started doing it. It was just really out of necessity. And also I remember throughout my entire time cooking that I always really wanted to see Mexican food interpreted differently. So a combination of all of that was what I needed in my, like, I guess it was mid twenties, 25, 26, when I started doing this 27 to just say, all right, let's just put yourself out there. Like what's the worst that can happen? You know, worst case, nobody shows up and that's fine. <laughs> you just figure something else out. At least you get the answers that you're looking for. So but it was just- such a unique point of view. I mean, for even someone like myself who like grew up eating Mexican every night, I mean, there's always like a homemade sauce on the table and tortillas, no matter what we were eating, you know, and seeing, having your food was just a completely different experience. I, I mean, Mexican food is very meat-based, um, very cheese-based, a lot of just dairy. And yours was like vegan, the sit-down meal that we had. I remember this was like right before, this was right before Hillary Cadigan got, um, her job as the culture editor over at Bon Appetit. And I remember she was at one of these dinners too. And we were just talking and we we're just like, there's just nothing like this, you know? And then of course she featured you as a result. But um, I mean, it, there was nothing like it. And I remember at the time, like a lot of what you were using came from Mena's farm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she was actually there at that meal and, and the guy from where, where you are. Oh yes. 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 Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was just like felt like a, a very like crystallizing moment for Atlanta food. And, and then, and then, you know, just when you got to eight arm and you were there mm-hmm. doing that residency as a chef, it was like a really just a fascinating ascension for me to watch. What was, what was it like mm-hmm. to go from, you know, working in all of these Atlanta kitchens as a cog in someone else's vision to starting a pop-up out of your home and having it take off so much to where you were like, you know, where you are now. <laughs> um, if you're shy, yeah. I had to, was it overwhelming? Yeah, it was very overwhelming. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very overwhelming, even still today, just because I'm a very reserved person. But I think that aside, I always have to put that aside because... I will trace back to what I felt like being as a line cook, which is just having that vision of wanting to see that out in our, and be it be a part of our food scene and our culture here in, the, in Atlanta and in Georgia, you know, because I was raised in Northwest, that I put all, like that aside, that feeling of shyness and just was like embracing it as best as I could and just trying, trying to stay focused. And with, staying focused means continuing to do a lot of research. Um, but that can also unfortunately come with a lot of self-doubt as well. Like, am I, is this okay? Is this what, is this interpretation okay? You know, um, stressing out over when we were finally making tortillas, like, oh my God, <laughs> they're not inflating. Someone's gonna see this, like, oh shit. <laughs> you know, like there's mo- there's a lot of moments of that, like, fuck, the salsa tastes good you know but I know it tastes good I'm just like but does it taste good <laughs> like would a Mexican like it so <laughs> well that's a different thing yeah I mean that's a different thing. my dad is very particular about things even my pronunciation of dishes that I make so uh, 
You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. But it was like a really rapid ascension. I talked with Asha about it because, you know, she had a similar thing where it went from, you know, pop-up to um, to restaurant, you know, then to finding her own kind of space where, she, you know, with the third space where she feels happy and at ease and not, you know, being demanded by, you know, peop- like the demand of people and she can kind of set her own timeline. I mean, was it, I mean, you say it's overwhelming. Like, is that why you like left Adarm eventually? Or was it, was it just, were you just like, was it just that phase was over? Uh, I have to say that it's likely both. I think that it was, um, well, overwhelming. I probably could have lasted at Adarm for a couple more years just to really round off like two or like a good almost five year run. But unfortunately, I will say that, yes, COVID definitely took a huge mental toll out of me. Um, and that sucked a lot of creativity out of my brain. Um, but it does get overwhelming in the sense that you want to keep interpreting dishes, but sometimes you have to be somewhere to really understand that dish. But if you're exact, you really can't always be running off to Mexico to find that interpretation in that specific region. Mm. Um, and that's just how I like to function, honestly. That's, that's how I am as a creative. Is I, I will read it, I will trial it, but ultimately I want to try it from someone who knows what the heck they're talking about. Um, and then overwhelming too, just to constantly try to keep, you know, the menu interesting. Like we, we had a couple items that were consistent, but for the most part, the menu changed very frequently. And I, I understand that that could have not happened. That, I mean, I could have just left a, a consistent menu. Right. Um, but that, but that's just not really how I function either. I just, now you seem very have- tied to the land. So whatever the land is giving you seems mm-hmm. to inspire what you're cooking from what I see on my, on your Instagram could be completely different. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very true. So yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, the hours are very long. Uh, we were running, we started with lunch, dinner, brunch, and late night. So it was a lot of undertaking in the beginning. And, uh, you know, as much as we tried our best to balance out the hours, we were still working a lot. And of course that sucks your creativity out if you're tired. Um, and we were doing things differently too, like, um, in terms of just how, yeah, it was just a lot of changes that we were trying to make happen at once and it can be a lot, but ultimately, you know, eventually you got to go back to that original vision, which is, I really, really want to, you know, see myself with equity and see myself with the business and, you know, if one day I pass and the business is still there, maybe a nephew or niece, or if I end up having a child, maybe they can see to running it or not or whatever. But it's still, there's still a lot of other personal um, accomplishments that I need to keep pursuing. Um, and equity is a big one. And I do feel like I got a decent pay at ADAR, but I still needed more for all that I was providing. And that won't come unless it's your own for anything, really. 
I mean, I think that ADARM is a great incubator for talent. I think I was talking to someone the other day about like, what would Angus Brown, who was its founding chef and passed away shortly after it opened, like, what would he think about what it had be- has become? I think he'd be really proud. I don't think it's a forever home for anyone. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, moving on makes sense. But, you know, I think when you moved on, that was you kind of going back to something we had talked about in the first time I interviewed you many years ago. And that was like Masa and your land, Mm -hmm. your family land in Mexico. I mean, that seems to be like one of your great loves. Can you talk about your relationship to that land and to Masa? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I mean, Masa. Yes. So Maize. Yeah. Maize. So there's so many different ways to start that conversation. Um, But I guess to the root of it, that is what my family has been doing for a long time. They have been growing maize, their mupa, as they call it, their mupa for, you know, over 100 years. And if things hadn't, if policy-wise things could just work out for all of the small farmers around the world, you know, I think many more of them would continue to be farmers, unfortunately. And their land it, is where? Can you tell us? Yeah. So our land is, is like in a very fertile part of Guanajuato. It's on a volcanic basin. It like meets right where Lake Quetzal is. And Lake Quetzal is a large lake that is in between Michoacan and Guanajuato. So uh, we're like at the top of the lake and here's the lake, you can see it. And then there's Michoacan. And in this specific region, that's where the, this is something that I just learned when I was there. Um, This whole region is Budapecha land. So um, they are known to make the corundas. They're known to do a lot of pottery work. And so it almost feels like Maize is just always a calling, you know, has just always been there in the bloodlines regardless. And as you grow up in Georgia, you really don't see, you really haven't seen any land race maize. Land race being that that people have worked for hundreds of years to keep that specific variety, that kernel alive. And I mean, it's so special to work with that because that's resiliency that you're working with. That's like, like I tell people, this this shit wasn't created last year. This shit's been around for ten thousands of years. Not like the corn 10, that we eat in the United States. That's for sure. That is like completely diluted and full of crap. And you know, it is very different in Mexico. It's very different. It, it each has its own unique profile. When you mix them all, you can smell the terroir in your kitchen. It fills the air. And when you work with the dough, it all has its own properties. So that in itself, just for those reasons, as a cook, I mean, if you find a very specific ingredient, like some people like umi, well, for me, it's maize because there's so much to it that you always keep finding new little things within that. So um, in that, in speaking in that sense, I guess that's why I continue doing the work. But you know, just speaking in terms of like my ancestry, it just feels so natural. It feels so comforting. It's something that when I work with, I'm not necessarily intimidated. I'm just more curious, and it feels homey. Like every time I make my work, it—I mean, it's work, but 
there's always like a sense of connection that comes back to my brain. Like maybe it's not like a constant, you know, like short film that runs through my head. It might just be like a little picture in my head that floats by like, oh, mom doing something with their hands or grandma doing something with their hands. So there's a lot of sentiment and memory and of course, cult culture connections and just, um, you know, just curiousness out of the actual kernels that we're working with. So Masa is what feels right. It's what we deserve here in the South. And um, I want to bring it to us. And I hope that I'm not the only person that ends up with this, you know, idea to keep promoting it or, you know, talking about it. I mean, and, and you went back to that land when you left Adarm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just to, like you said, to go and just to like be in in that place with that terroir and to absorb it which i if you can do that as a chef i think it's like such a valuable thing i know it costs a lot of money for chefs to travel and that's not a reality for a lot but like i've seen chefs open like french restaurants in atlanta who you know don't know what it is to eat french food in france you know which is really again it's like a privileged thing but yeah. I think it's an important if, thing if you can do it. I think it makes you a better chef. Travel, at least, does. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was mentioning, you can have something, you can study about it, you can try and interpret it, but unless you have it there, you won't really know the direction of it. Or and even like what, the way it's supposed to be eaten. Like there's like so many cultural norms that you never think mm -hmm. about. Like just the just the way you're supposed to eat certain dishes in certain cultures to the point where it can be like offensive to the chef, you know? Um, yeah. But but with masa, you say bringing it to the south. And I've been watching on your social, you know, that you've been really like working with it. I've seen there's like some blue corn it looked like mm -hmm. there was like some i think you were making some tortillas what what are you doing with it today and when you say bring it to the south what do you mean yes so today we are waiting our we're waiting our inspections from the department of agriculture and our licensing to go through but we are just basically creating tortillas, sopes, pre-made products to hopefully sell in small stores um, here in Georgia and ideally regionally. Um, and then we'll be at the farmer's market for sure to start out. But it's just, you know, I guess like our initial phase is introducing this market to what that looks like. Eventually it will, you know, once, I don't know, maybe in five years, this is what it will look like. We'll have our, not working out of a communal kitchen, but we'll have our own little area where maybe it's centrally located so that demographically it makes sense to do a communal Molino. Cause you know, that's a thing in Mexico. Mm -hmm. They have communal Molinos, you bring your maize and you grind it. So I think that maybe eventually in the future, that's how we can look at things. Um, in a sense that we're reaching out to the community, but also balancing business. And that's always been something that I've thought about and have like really tried to dig deep into how can we provide the people, the Mexican people with these heirloom tortillas and how can we still run our model to make sense? Um, 
because it is kind of laborious right now because we're pressing up doing everything by hand i guess eventually we won't be pressing by you hand. need a machine girl <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but right now <laughs> i was making tostadas for um a dinner in houston and i had to make 150 and i was like wow maddie like you thought that you were going to do something easy but no, your girl was pressing tortillas till like four in the morning to get them to toast up. Oh my like, god! Like, didn't fry them, just like put them on the grill. And I was like, oh my god, why did I, I do that? this? <laughs> yeah. like, you literally picked the, like the longest thing to do. <laughs> you should have just made sopas. <laughs> but with your cooking right now, what are you doing? I mean, I'm seeing that you're doing some dinners. What's your relationship like to cooking for the public? So yes, business aside, which will be products, um, working with the public still is something that I creatively need um, and also want to give. So I think it means probably figuring out a couple of pop-ups, not as frequently as often, but maybe once a month where I can have a pop-up that you can buy menu items that are expensive. I love course dinners. There's just pop-ups are fun, uh, but it's very unpredictable. And then coursed out dinners, it's very controlled, very meticulous, lots of ideas, very specific plating that I really love. Can you talk about like some of your dishes for people who haven't had your food, like in one of these coursed out dinners, maybe just tell me the menu of the last dinner you did. The last menu that I did was with the plate cell. And what is the plate cell? Can you tell people? Yes. So the plate cell, and I love to collaborate with um, lots of friends and chefs and the plate cell is one of the, one of those people. They're based in Oglethorpe County and they're basically working to revitalize the land that Sharitha's family has had in their um, family for over a hundred years. I think, I think it's been about a hundred years that they've had it. Um, I feel like they used to share crop and then they got this piece of land. Um, and so they're just revitalizing this farmhouse and they hope to have a restaurant where they serve uh, interpretations of Southern cuisine. And since we did this dinner, Mike is interested in serving different interpretations of the African diaspora because Mike, Sharitha, and I did an uh, Afro-Mexican dinner in mid-September. Yeah, mid-September. And the reason for that was just us talking about what our food could be. And I was like, well, you know what, you guys? We do a lot of diaspora-based dinners, but we never really intersect. Like, he'll do African and I'll just do Mesoamerican. Um, and... So we decided to focus on the Afro-Mexican because there just isn't enough emphasis on that population. Um, in fact, they were just recently put on the census last year. So we decided to focus on Veracruz and the Costa Chica coast, which is uh, in between a sandwich in between Guerrero and Oaxaca. There are a couple other pockets of the Afro-Mexican population, but these are the ones that are the most prominent. So we did, uh, like I did shrimp a la Veracruzana. Mm. And so there was capers and olives. Um, and a lot of those influences come from when enslaved folks were being brought over to the Caribbean area. And so it was like a lot of Portuguese and Spanish 
I guess, influence from the um, colonizers. <laughs> so that's how you kind of get olives and capers involved into the Mexican cuisine. And so, yes, we did a tomato, capers, olives. You kind of make a sauce out of that with some jalapeno serranos. We use banana peppers, a combination of all three since I have all three in my garden. And we had some nice, uh, beautiful, big Gulf shrimp, grilled those up, had the sauce layered on top of it, did an epizote aioli since I'm growing epizote right now. Epizote aioli, I don't think I've ever heard of an epizote aioli. I love it. It was yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, it's got like a lot of, I mean, people call it the gasoline plant, but I like I like the scent of it. Um, it has like a lot of earthy floral notes. Mm -hmm. It's like our uh, shiso, our yeah. shiso leaf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it grows everywhere, just like she saw. <laughs> um, and so I did the shrimp a la vera cusana. I did, um, he did plantain empanadas. They were mm -hmm. made out of corn, out of masa and plantain dough. And then the inside was ripened plantains. These things were so light and fluffy. He paired it with a habanero hot sauce on top or a habanada hot sauce on top. Um, what else did we do? Um, I did alataya, trout alataya, so grilled over the fire. Um, and then I did rice, rice and black beans, which is uh, it's a, a very specific combination to the Afro-Mexican. And we did Carolina gold rice and then black mm. beans that I got from Black Scala. So like moros? Yeah, like moros, Cuban yeah. moros. Yeah, mm -hmm. oh like, yeah. like masitas with moros when I go to yeah. like Cuban. Oh my god! <laughs> but, so, like, you talk about your garden. Um, are you getting most of like what? What is your garden today? Is it less like a little plot, or are you providing most of your pop-ups or dinners with produce? Um. So when I, well, when I had the idea of doing course out dinners. Every time you will relate to this, when you go to Mexico, you're it, generally you're eating food outside or in a space that feels like you're outside. Like when you go to Rosetta, it's luscious, even if it's your if it's a mural or there's plants, like it's always luscious, it's always green. And in Atlanta, I don't I don't see as many spaces, and that's what I what kind of motivated me to initially have the idea to do garden dinners at my house. And when we got this little rental, um, the backyard screamed to me yard because there's a big opening, there aren't a lot of trees. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, we're definitely gonna do a garden space. This was like August, 2020, we're gonna do a garden space. Um, and then we're gonna set up an area to have like private dinners. So that was the idea behind um, cenas en el jardín. And how does it feel to be like growing your own vegetables though? I mean, you just seem so tied to the land in general as a person and as a chef. Yeah. So the garden, it, it I mean, all it can really provide at this point is garnishes and we've only been there. We just finished our year at this lease. So it's kind of, it's not impossible, but it's not realistic to be growing produce off of your first year for whatever dinners. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, working with the gardens, it just feels familial. Like it's just, it's really an instant connection to my family. When we go to my parents' house in Dalton, 
like we each year our gardens keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that's just what like i mentioned when we first were kids we had small plots now it's big like five big plots everything just keeps sprawling and it just keeps taking over and that's where we connect that's the first thing that we do when i get in my dad will be like hey come look at these peppers or like right now it's fig season come 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 we're gonna go get some figs and then the kids will come and they'll be picking basil they know now what to pick what not to pick um it's just our connection it's just our connection and i can look at it like i was way too young when my grandfather was still alive and they would go up to the mesa with my brothers and that's just like what we would do like we would get to mexico to see our, our family and then immediately all right let's go to this plot or that plot so you can get this and this and that and you know like mesquite guayabas whatever it is that was out we would always like go or they would go on a field trip i was still too little to do whatever it is that they needed to pick and it's just that's just yeah that's how i was raised when we didn't have that big of garden spaces they would take us up to the state parks and just be out in in the land and nature and getting spring water or finding little things to pick like it's just how we were raised, you know? And so the land connected you as a family and growing food connected you as a family and cooking the food connected you as a family. Yeah, that's beautiful. beautiful. It is, it is. It feels really sentimental because I'll never forget, even though I was little, my grandpa would always look out from the corner of this little rock that was set up next to the house, which was in perfect diagonal direction to where the mess is, his his what was his land and he would just sit there and he always had a, a tortilla with tomatillos and chile negros that was his thing and he would roll it up and eat it and i'd be like grandpa what are you looking at and he'd be like oh es que nomás todo esto viene, viene, vino de allá or he's like everything came from there and then he would just eat like not necessarily even smiling just sitting there in satisfaction you know connected mm-hmm. connected satisfied uh not a rich man you know a self-sufficient farmer what was there was there what we had was what we had um but i always really admired that and so i just try to keep that to myself um when i feel too stressed about money or something i always reflect on that and i push forward which is why I really like want to make my masa products project a real thing and it's happening so I finally feel like it's going to be a real thing. I'm so happy for you. I know how much you've worked to get to this point. Oof, so hard. How can people support you? I mean, if people want to support you that are listening, if they want to eat your food, buy your masa, this is your place to plug whatever, whomever. Take as much time as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we are... Our Instagram is a great way to follow us until we get our website. We're rebranding. And by the way, we changed from Chico Mequat, who is Aztec, is an Aztec goddess. We switched to Chico after having that revelation of being on Purapecha land and wanting to do the right call of what feels like you're not appropriating your own culture, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we switched to Chico. So you can follow us on Chico with three O's ATL on IG. Um, and then soon our website will reflect that, hopefully. Um, and 
maybe late November, starting late November, we should be on a regular schedule at Morningside Market doing masa products. We'll also have some hot food, so affordable, fat, uh, fast little bites. Nice. Um, antojitos. Antojitos, <laughs> yes. And then just look out for our dinners. Our dinners, um, they are creative expression. They tend to be, you know, $150 to $200, but it's an entire experience that you're paying for here. Um, and we're, everything that we source is very thoughtfully, so that also goes into consideration. Um, and it's a good way to really understand the motivation behind why we do masa. Like you can taste it in the food, you can see it in how we're interpreting things. And, and that goes to speak on the ingredients that we choose to use for all of this, which all of that together makes us who we are. And they're also really beautiful. We tend to get beautiful flowers and vegetation from all of our other friends. So you just feel like you're in a whole nother world, but yeah supporting us by buying our products once we go live hopefully like in little stores like uh seven onda or uh like the candler markets we're talking to the buyers about getting our stores on the our product on the shelves and stores um so a lot of that should come to full fruitation by the end of the year um for sure by the beginning of next year but we'll still have pop-ups and little dinners so you can always support this through that and do you do private dinners as well if people wanted to hire you to do an event or are you not doing that? Yeah, yeah we do private dinners. Um, we do catering, but we have minimums that we have to meet. Um, also, a lot of things like when we do those kinds of very, I guess, niche market things and people look at pricing, I just want to like let people know that you know, we tend to pay above market prices for labor, for products, for everything. Um, and that, you know, just goes back to what I, my personal experience, you know, working as a cook and, you know, $15 an hour is not going to cut it. So we pay above that. Um, and all of that, you know, you're just supporting all of our community by supporting Chico in Georgia and far and beyond. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I love what you do. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, and just always supporting everything that we do, like Chico, myself, Josh is the other person. People yeah, are I was like, about to ask, who's, who's we? we? <laughs> <laughs> it's myself and then Josh, and he is my um, and who's Josh, significant Josh's last name? Josh Narula. He's my significant other, but also uh, <laughs> he also he's been helping me with everything, like um, like all of the creative direction at those dinners at my old house in Mechanicsville, everything production, tamales, the ones that are the prettier tamales are Josh's. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that are not as pretty are mine. It's like, it's like, I can't believe you're doing it like that. I'm like, well, you have your way. Thank you again for your time. And, and again, if people want to follow you, aside from Chico ATL, is there any other place they can follow you? Yeah, hit up Mars Demari, M-A-R-S-D-E-M-A-R-I. Um, and then, yeah, we're only on Instagram and uh, we have the website, but like we'll probably have a new domain okay, by the cool. end of the year. So, All right, well, thank yes. you for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Well, that's this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to Maricela for joining us here. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as The Food That Binds or Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. Next week, 
my guest is Mike Jordan, a local food writer here in Atlanta. Again, we'll be back on Wednesday. And I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds.